This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. We are going to be prepared day one, January 20, 2025, to hit the ground running as as conservatives to really help the next president. This task in 2024 is too big for any one think tank. This has to be a movement. And what we've done is use our convening power here at Heritage to bring the entire movement together. But what we're doing is systematically preparing to march into office and bring a new army of aligned, trained, and essentially weaponized conservatives ready to do battle against the deep state. The Heritage Foundation and dozens of right-wing dark money organizations have come together to formulate Project 2025, which is a set of personnel and policy recommendations intended to guide the next Republican administration through their first 180 days in office. And if they successfully pressure the president to adopt everything on their wish list, America would look like a completely different country. They would dismantle the administrative state, expand the power of the executive, enact nationwide internet censorship, ban porn, and politically imprison LGBTQ plus people potentially. And should the next Republican president choose to pursue this unconstitutional agenda, he'd have the backing of the Supreme Court most likely. Now, all of this is moot if A, a Republican loses the 2024 election, or B, a Republican wins but chooses to ignore this agenda entirely. But if the Federalist Society has taught us anything, it's that Republicans always listen to well-funded right-wing think tanks because those are the organizations that their donors send money to. So why wouldn't they listen? And Ed Corrigan, who's one of the architects of Project 2025, casually explained why they're very confident that this is not going to be ignored. This has been really uh, a team effort. You got 50 uh, different conservative organizations have contributed to this. Um, That's what makes this a a strong product. No presidential campaign or president uh, is going to be able to ignore it. No presidential campaign or president is going to be able to ignore it. And he's right about that. He said it in a very nonchalant way, but it's still very ominous nonetheless. But let's break it down. What is Project 2025? Well, the first order of business would be for them to expand the power of the presidency in order to lay the groundwork for unconstitutional policies that they really want to implement. As Bryn Tannehill of Dame Magazine explains, the mandate for leadership is a 920-page document that details how the next Republican administration will implement radical and sweeping changes to the entirety of governments. This blueprint assumes that the next president will be able to rule by fiat under the unitary executive theory, which posits that the president has the power to control the entire federal executive branch. It is also based on the premise that the next president will implement Schedule F, which allows the president to fire any federal employee who has policymaking authority and replace them with the presidential appointee who is not voted on in the Senate.
Senate. The president would directly manage and influence Department of Justice and FBI cases, which would allow him to pursue criminal cases against political enemies. Environmental law would be gutted, and states would be prevented from enforcing their own environmental laws. So there's a lot to this, and it's pretty complicated, so let me try to parse this out for you. What this basically means is that federal agencies, which currently operate independently, would lose that independence. Many federal agencies that they don't like would just be abolished or weaponized to their own liking. For example, they plan on gutting the EPA predictably and shifting them away from their focus on climate change entirely while directing other agencies to expand fossil fuel infrastructure like the Department of Energy, for example. And you're probably thinking, well, couldn't the president already effectively do that by just appointing a stooge or industry plan? I mean, we've seen this again and again. So why not just make somebody who is a fossil fuel CEO, for example, the head of the EPA? Well, the president could do that, but this is different because it goes further than that. Because once they re-implement Schedule F via executive order, they also plan to clean house, which is very different than last time. Because as Salon explains, by replacing federal employees with like-minded officials, Trump-era conservatives are planning to remove federal employees whom they perceive as obstacles to the president's agenda early on. This would avoid the pitfalls of Trump's first years in office and eliminate the possibility of any resistance a Republican president would encounter, the AP reported. And what this would do is create a sort of organizational harmony so you wouldn't see the pushback that we saw in Trump's first years in office, for example, because remember, he wanted to do a lot of really terrible things, but he couldn't. There are limits to the president's power, but this is kind of the answer to that. It's a way to address these obstacles that he had encountered and remove them. And think about it this way. So remember when Bill Barr was attorney general and he contradicted Trump's lies about the election and he said that he's not going to open up a probe into the FBI's investigation of Trump's 2016 campaign like he openly defied Trump, essentially. Well, Barr was able to do that because as the attorney general, as the head of the Department of Justice, you have independence, you have autonomy right? Trump can't influence what you do. He could simply fire you and replace you with somebody else who's more loyal. But even that power is limited because Trump tried to do this. Remember when Justice Department officials threatened to resign en masse when Trump considered replacing Jeffrey Rosen with Jeffrey Clark when he was trying to steal the election? I mean, that was really important. That stopped Trump from proceeding forward with his attempt to steal the 2020 election. But I mean, think about what would happen in that scenario if the president assumed a direct control of the Department of Justice and worse, replaced every legacy employee with Trump loyalists who would be less likely to defy him. I mean, you start to kind of see how this would become a threat to democracy directly and why this would be much worse than last time, because those existing checks that limit the president's power would simply not exist anymore under this philosophy, which they want to embrace. It would give him virtually unlimited power over the entire executive branch and every agency, and that is a problem. And Trump had authoritarian ambitions before, right? But the problem is that he didn't have the power or the know-how to actually pull off his dictatorial ambitions, but this time would be different because many of the 300 plus conservatives involved in Project 2025 came from Trump's administration and they would likely return for round two if he were reelected. And what's scary is that Trump has already embraced this vision for the executive. So if he's reelected, this will likely become a reality. So what they're doing is they're looking back at the obstacles that he faced the first time he was in the White House and they're 
trying to eliminate all of those obstacles going forward so that way he can do all of the terrible things that he wants to do. But once they consolidate presidential power, they then move on to the second order of business, the implementation of policy. And a lot of that includes deregulation, giveaways to their donors that fund you know, this network. Uh, the traditional conservative things that you would expect. But there's also a component regarding conservative social policy, and it's a sort of wish list that would basically transform the United States into a Christian theocracy. And they're pretty explicit about this. So Dame explains, the social conservative wish list calls for ending abortion, diversity and inclusion efforts, protections for LGBTQ people, and most importantly, banning any and all LGBTQ content. In fact, the mandate for leadership makes eradicating LGBTQ people from public life its top priority. Its number one promise is to restore the family as the centerpiece of American life and protect our children. They are explicit in how they plan to do so, as you'll see in the paragraph below, they plan to proceed by declaring any and all LGBTQ content to be pornographic in nature. And this is a direct quote from Project 2025's document. Quote, pornography manifested today in the omnipresent propagation of transgender ideology and sexualization of children, for instance, is not a political Gordian knot inextricably binding up disparate claims about free speech, property rights, sexual liberation, and child welfare. It has no claim to First Amendment Amendment protections. Its purveyors are child predators and misogynistic exploiters of women. Their product is as addictive as any illicit drug and as psychologically destructive as any crime. Pornography should be outlawed. The people who produce and distribute it should be imprisoned. Educators and public librarians who purvey it should be classed as registered sex offenders and telecommunications and technology firms that facilitate its spread should be shuttered. That is absolutely chilling. But the question is, what would this look like in practice? And to be honest, nobody knows for sure, but at best, it looks like a nationwide implementation of don't say gay in all schools and a likely ban on gender affirming care in all 50 states. But at worst, this also could look like the literal imprisonment of anyone who is openly LGBTQ. Dame speculates it's also arguable that LGBTQ parents would be subject to arrest, imprisonment, and being put on sex offender registries for exposing children to pornography simply by being LGBTQ and having children. It could be argued as well that people who are visibly trans in public are pornographic or obscene because they might be seen by a minor. This understanding of intent is in line with the call to eradicate transgenderism from public life. So this is genuinely terrifying because we are looking at a situation where every single queer person and arguably queer allies would no longer be safe in this country. They could all be subject to imprisonment or being on a sex offender list just because they're gay or trans. I mean, many people would be forced to leave, especially if they're in red states with governors not willing to protect them. This would create an LGBTQ refugee crisis of mass proportions. And that's what they want. But it gets worse because they want to crack down on the internet. Now, first, let's talk about the way that that would affect LGBTQ plus people and their allies. So with pornography being outlawed and all queer related content being designated as porn, well, 
anyone who disseminates said pornographic material, like myself apparently, and the website that allows for said dissemination, like YouTube apparently, as well as the internet service provider that gives users access to this website that disseminates pornographic material, would all be subject to punishment or imprisonment at worst. In other words, if YouTube doesn't cleanse their website of pornographic LGBTQ plus content, then internet service providers would be forced to cut them off, which would effectively kill off all of these websites unless they comply. And LGBTQ content isn't the only thing that they would designate as porn. Let's be clear about that. Think of all of the movies and video games that would be censored if this all came to fruition. I mean, we're looking at a censorship regime here that's far worse than China's and more similar to Saudi Arabia's and the Taliban's. That's where we're at. That's what they're openly saying that they want. But if they try to do this, there'd obviously be extreme pushback from blue states. But of course, they've thought about that too, and they have a plan. Dame continues, the organizations that drafted the mandate for leadership understand that blue states, which have sanctuary laws for transgender people, are unlikely to comply. It's difficult to imagine California arresting and prosecuting teachers, librarians, doctors, therapists, bookstores, virtual or physical, LGBTQ parents, and especially LGBTQ people merely for existing in public. This is why they include the following paragraph, quote, where warranted and proper under federal law, initiate legal action against local officials, including district attorneys, who deny American citizens the equal protection of the laws by refusing to prosecute criminal offenses in their jurisdictions. This holds true particularly for jurisdictions that refuse to enforce the law against criminals based on the left's favorite defining characteristics of the would-be offender, race, so-called gender identity, sexual orientation, etc., or other political considerations, e.g. immigration status. This is calling for the executive branch to use the Department of Justice to threaten prosecution of any local or state officials if they do not charge LGBTQ people and their allies with crimes under the pretense that they are breaking federal and state laws against exposing minors to pornography. If people at the Department of Justice refuse to go along with this, then they can simply be replaced under Schedule F. And we're really not even scratching the surface because remember, this document is 900 plus pages long. And we're just looking at the LGBTQ policies. But think about the ways that they'd hamstring states' ability to provide women with abortions. Think about how this will impact people on welfare, people getting Social Security, Medicare, employment. I mean, the possibilities are endless, and every possibility ranges from a threat to democracy from an outright violation of democracy. And the only check on the president in this scenario would be Congress and our far-right Supreme Court. Don't really like those odds, right? Even if Congress tried to rein in the president's power and pass some sort of a law to stop this from happening, well, the Supreme Court could go along with it. They could embrace unitary executive theory and strike down that law on grounds that it's unconstitutional and the president could continue to do this. It's a literal nightmare scenario. Like, imagine, do you think that Clarence Thomas or Samuel Alito would not go along with this? Of course they would. But having said that, though, before we get a little bit too down, this is only a wish list. Odds are they're not going to get 100% of the things that they ask for. But what if they get 50% or 25%? I mean, certainly if they tried this, there would be a massive legal battle with, you know, judges striking it down initially and it making its way to the Supreme Court. So there would be time for us to prepare 
how we're going to respond to this. But regardless, even if they got 10% of it and Trump just did what he says he's going to do, which is expand the power of the executive, that is still very troubling. Consolidating executive power is not a new phenomenon because each president has continued to expand power. Everyone, Democrats and Republicans alike, Obama, Bush, Trump. But we're talking about a massive expansion of presidential power that gives the president virtually unlimited authority over the entire executive. But even if, in the best case scenario, they get nothing, none of this comes to fruition and Trump doesn't even do what they say he should do with regard to taking control of the executive. Well, I still think this is worth our attention because this is the vision of 50 right-wing think tanks, think tanks that have a lot of sway over Republican politicians. That's, that's huge. They are telling us that this is what they want for our country, an end to U.S. democracy, a dictatorship with the Republican on top. And I think that they wrote Project 2025 with Trump in mind, but they'll take anyone. They'll take DeSantis. They'll take Nikki Haley. They will take anyone who is willing to do what they want to do. And if maybe they say we're going to endorse a candidate, give them lots of donations, if they pledge to support Project 2025 in their first 180 days in office, well, then this could give a little bit more teeth to this authoritarian manifesto right but the fact that this is what they want as soon as a republican comes back into the white house means that we have to fight that much harder to keep a republican out of the white house for as long as we can to at least buy us some time right so you know a little bit about project 2025 do with this information what you will and i worry if they start to take the vote away you you could see bloodshed in this country like none of us want. Do, do you want us to be in civil war? Because that's what's going to happen. It is going to be the last American election that will be decided by ballots rather than bullets. That was a warning from prominent Republicans who say that the political movement, which they're part of, might turn violent if Trump's criminality inhibits his presidential campaign or keeps him off the ballot in 2024. Now, these are the same folks who are also quick to remind us that they themselves are still only proto-fascists and would never want to have to resort to violence. But I mean, the same can't be said about the people that's part of their political movement. Now, I, for one, would question my politics if I thought that the people who are part of my movement were this thirsty for bloodshed and were this susceptible to violence. But I mean, I don't think that the folks that we listen to have that much self-awareness. Having said that, though, they are doing us a service by saying the quiet part loud. So first, let's hear from Congressman Matt Gates. This is what he said on a recent episode of Driveway Liberty Podcast, and you're going to get the full context. Yeah, it turns out they'll let anybody have these jobs who gets the most votes. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. It's kind, of, right. kind of funny how that works, right? Yeah. Well, you know, and, and now they're trying to change that. Like what we were talking about earlier, mm -hmm. with, you know, with uh, secretaries of state trying to decide certain, you know, Trump can't even be on the ballot. I, I, I Look, and that's something I, I hate to keep hammering I, this. I predicted that. We, we, no, <laughs> we predicted that. I think I heard that. Ago. I really yeah, did. I listened that. to that episode I when you guys like, said that it wasn't even going to be I mean, it's, be to me, it's not like a big. It's, no. He, I mean, it's, you could see it coming uh, from miles He's away. arrested. We can now say he's got a felony on his record or, or, or a high level misdemeanor. 
he can't be on the ballot in our state. We, I mean, that's that's a that has been the plan from the beginning. That has been the plan from the beginning. I really worry that that type of action could lead to violence, and I am so wildly opposed to violence. I don't think it's how we should resolve our disputes. No. But when you start telling people that they can't express their participation in this American experience through a vote, then they start looking for other ways. And yep. they're not the vote is the best way to do it. The other ways are not so good. And I worry if they start to take the vote away, you you could see bloodshed in this country like none of us want. Absolutely. No. Matt, have you ever considered that telling these people that evil Democrats have weaponized the justice system to illegitimately go after political opponents might be part of the problem? Because if you genuinely don't want violence, then as a leader, you can choose to stop fanning the flames. But you're continuing to do that. And that's a choice. See, you could actually tell the truth about Donald Trump and let his supporters know that he tried to illegally steal an election that he lost and charging him for those crimes is necessary to preserve democracy so future presidents know that they can't do what he did with impunity. But he won't say that because he wants violence, despite what he says. Because, I mean, if you continue to rile people up, yet you expect violence from those same people you're riling up, then you are part of the problem. You must want violence. I have to assume that, right? You're an antagonist here. But he's not the only person to say this because we have former governors like Sarah Palin and Mike Huckabee echoing the same sentiment. But first, Mike Huckabee. Do you know how political opponents to those in power are dealt with in third world dictatorships, banana republics and communist regimes? Well, it's simple. The people in power use their police agencies to arrest their opponents for made up crimes in an attempt to discredit them, bankrupt them, imprison them, exile them, are all of the above. And if you're not paying attention, you may not realize that Joe Biden is using exactly those tactics to make sure that Donald Trump is not his opponent in 2024. Here's the problem. If these tactics end up working to keep Trump from winning or even running in 2024, it is going to be the last American election that will be decided by ballots rather than bullets. How very Christian of him. And the lack of self-awareness is unsurprising, albeit still just stunning to see. They're inverting the analogy that they're using, and it's not the first time that I've seen this, but Trump is the one who did what dictators in third world countries do. He's the one who illegally tried to usurp the Constitution and steal an election. I mean, charging him for those crimes is a matter of upholding the rule of law, something also not present in dictatorships, right? So. He's got this whole thing backwards, but his viewers aren't smart enough to know that. And remember, he knows what he's saying here. This is a former governor who is well aware of the fact that Trump is the one with dictatorial ambitions. And he said that. But the goal is to work Trump supporters into a frenzy to get them to be violent. That's what he wants. I genuinely believe that. Now let's hear from Sarah Palin. And as you listen to her, ask yourself whether or not you think this is tantamount to an incitement of violence, because I actually don't think that that's a stretch. We've talked about the two-tier justice system, but when you see it happening, when you see the former president being fingerprinted, having to show up, turn himself in, you see the mugshots of the other I go, seven or eight who've, who've turned themselves in or right. Alrighty. Do you have concern for, for the country as I do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, th I think uh, those who are conducting this travesty and uh, creating this two-tier 
system of justice. I'm, I want to ask them, what the heck? Do, do you want us to be in civil war? Because that's what's going to happen. We're not going to keep putting up with this. And Eric, I like that you suggested that we need to get angry. We do need to rise up and take our country back. Now, I would... Um, I would say the RNC, though, that's what's lacking when it comes to collective anger that can be healthy and it can be useful. Where is the RNC? They hold the purse strings to the party. They hold they hold the funds that could be helping out in this situation. They have the platform and yet they're too timid and a bunch of freaking rhinos running the thing. So the RNC, they better get their stuff together or I'll have to ask them, too. What do they want as an outcome of this civil war? Yikes. Quote, do you want us to be in a civil war because that's what's going to happen? We're not going to keep putting up with this. And then seconds later, she added, we do need to get angry. We need to rise up and take our country back. Subtle, real subtle, Sarah Palin. Now, after Gabrielle Giffords was featured with crosshairs over her district in an ad from Sarah Palin's super PAC, she was shot. And many people rightfully condemned Sarah Palin's irresponsible rhetoric, and she testified about how devastated she felt in her defamation lawsuit against the New York Times after they linked her to the shooting. So you would think that she'd learn from that experience and uh, tone down the rhetoric, avoid words that could even be perceived by anyone as an incitement of violence. But here we are. So, I mean, the increasingly violent rhetoric is a problem and it's going to continue to be a problem because it's not going to stop anytime soon in fact it's only going to get worse because we're in a period where the proto-fascist republicans are in the process of devolving into full-blown violent fascists and in an op-ed for the hill max burns points out that republicans just can't stop calling for civil war and he writes ask a MAGA republican what will happen if former president donald trump is convicted in any of his four criminal trials and the answer is almost always the same civil war. That answer holds true whether you speak to rank-and-file Republican voters, local elected officials, or even former national GOP leaders. It's also an indication that the right-wing politics of grievance is spiraling dangerously out of control. In Georgia, State Senator Colton Moore warned Politico-turned-podcaster Steve Bannon that any prosecution of Trump would lead to a likely civil war. Quote, I don't want to have to draw my rifle, Moore said. Concerningly, Moore also seemed to imply that Georgia state troopers would be willing participants in any effort to bust Trump out of jail. The last bit may be fantastical thinking on Moore's part, but he's hardly alone. Former Georgia Republican gubernatorial candidate Candace Taylor also lent her voice to the chorus of war cries describing Trump's indictments as treason and hijacking of our country, telling podcaster William Wallace, this is war and I hope and pray it gets resolved before we use guns. We're at war right now, a war for our freedom. And I also think it's worth pointing out that that last person we heard from, Candace Taylor, is a flat earther. So obviously we're not dealing with the brightest people. And I think that that should be further cause for concern because if they're not smart enough to think through the ramifications of their rhetoric or their actions, then I think it's possible that these types of people would resort to violence, right? And in that article, Max Burns goes on to explain that January 6th taught us that rank and file Republicans will follow orders of far right leaders. So he asks, is it really responsible to keep riling them up with violent rhetoric? And that's what a lot of people say. They'll kind of ascribe a sort of ignorance, but good intent to these fascists when we'd be mistaken to assume that they don't know exactly what they're doing. 
they know that the temperature is dangerously high right now. And while 13 presidential libraries issued an unprecedented joint statement to warn us about the fragile state of our democracy, you have antagonists across the country repeatedly egging on a political movement that already showed its propensity for violence. So we need to be very clear. They know what they're doing. They know it's dangerous, but they don't care. They want violence, and that's why they're issuing these warnings. It's not a courtesy to us. It's a threat, and we should take it that way. After the Supreme Court struck down President Joe Biden's student debt cancellation plan back in June, he did announce that he'd be pursuing cancellation through the Higher Education Act of 1965 instead, which is something that he probably should have done in the first place, although the Supreme Court probably would have still struck it down. But regardless, it's good to know that he's still pursuing cancellation regardless. The problem, however, is that interest has started to accrue at the start of this month and payments are set to resume in October. And none of us know when to expect the cancellation that Biden promised. So the fear is starting to set in for a lot of us. I know I speak for more than just myself here. But if you have student debt for the moment, it seems as if the best option is to enroll in Biden's SAVE Act. As CNN explains, like other income-driven repayment plans, SAVE calculates monthly payments based on a borrower's income and family size, regardless of how much outstanding student debt is owed. A single borrower earning $32,800 or less, or a borrower with a family of four earning $67,500 or less will see their payments set at $0 if enrolled in SAVE, for example. Also under SAVE, unpaid interest will not accrue if a borrower makes a full monthly payment. That means that a borrower's balance won't increase even if the monthly payment doesn't cover the monthly interest. For example, if $50 in interest accumulates each month and a borrower has a $30 payment, the remaining $20 would not be charged. Now, there's a lot more to it than that. Additional parts will also be phased in next year. So I'm going to link you to a Department of Education fact sheet, and I'm also going to link you to the application form for the save plan, which I would highly encourage you to apply for as soon as possible. But I mean, this is basically the next best thing after cancellation, because many, if not most borrowers can never pay off their debt specifically because of the interest rates. So capping the interest is really important, and these student loan borrowers in this video are going to explain why student loans are such a catch-22. Spoiler alert, it's because of interest rates. The loan was originally a $24,000 loan. Currently, I owe over $45,000, and I've been paying it off for about six years now. I've paid $103,000 on $82,000 debt, and I still want $45,000, that's money that I can't put toward retirement. A student loan, it's not coming down, it's going up. My debt started off at 33,000, it is now somewhere closer to 200,000. I probably will be paying them till I'm 80 years old at this point. Graduated in 1998 with $29,000 of student loan debt. This year, my student loan debt has accumulated to almost $52,000 after paying on it all these years. So if you're responsible and you make payments every single month, it doesn't matter. You still might see your debt rise because of the interest rates. So putting a cap on interest rates is really the bare minimum. But to be clear, none of this should be happening. The fact that any of us have student debt is a policy choice, right? All of it can and should be wiped away immediately. And going forward, colleges should be free. But 
that's not what we have right now. The best option is an income-based repayment plan and a cap on interest. Not good enough, but it's a start. Now, after Republicans successfully fucked us out of ten dollars to $20,000 worth of cancellation, well, they're not done yet because guess what? They're now actively trying to block Biden's save plan because they think that our interest should continue to grow each and every single month, even if we're making payments. And they want to make sure that our monthly payment is not lowered. Insider reports on Tuesday, Senators Bill Cassidy, John Thune and John Cornyn led 14 of their GOP colleagues in introducing a bill that would overturn Biden's new save income driven repayment plan formally launched in August to lower borrowers monthly payments. Cassidy is the top Republican on the Senate Education Committee. The Republican lawmakers seeking to overturn that plan say it's an overreach of authority and would cost taxpayers. That's a lot of horseshit. Cassidy and his colleagues are using the Congressional Review Act, a fast-track tool Congress can use to overturn final rules put in place by federal agencies to attempt to overturn the SAVE plan. He used the same method to introduce a bill to overturn Biden's broad debt relief plan before the Supreme Court ultimately struck it down. That bill passed Congress and Biden vetoed it in June. GOP representatives Lisa McLean and Virginia Fox introduced the companion version of the senator's bill in the House on Tuesday. Yeah. So, this is not surprising, but regardless, it still makes my fucking blood boil because we just can't win. We can't have anything. We can't have a measly $10,000 canceled. We can't cap interest. We can't even lower the fucking monthly payment that you already can't afford to make. They just want you strapped with debt as long as possible so that way their donors in the student loan servicing industry can leech as much money as possible out, out of you until you fucking die. I mean, I honestly believe that Republicans are ontologically evil. They genuinely enjoy watching Americans suffer and that fuels them. It gives them life. But they don't want to admit that, right? They don't want to admit that they just want to see you fucking suffer and be miserable. So they'll cloak their antagonism towards the working class in disingenuous concern for taxpayers. For example, Bill Cassidy said this about the save plan. Once again, Biden's newest student loan scheme only shifts the burden from those who chose to take out loans to those who decided not to go to college, paid their way, or already responsibly paid off their loans, Cassidy said in a statement. Our resolution protects the 87% of Americans who don't have student debt and will be forced to shoulder the burden of the president's irresponsible and unfair policy. And there's more because in a Fox News op-ed, he idiotically claims that the SAFE plan, which doesn't include cancellation, by the way, is somehow a bigger student loan handout. Make that make fucking sense. And in a tweet promoting his shitty article, he adds, President Biden's plan is not a fix. It is a politically motivated giveaway that forces taxpayers to shoulder the responsibility of paying off someone else's debt. We need real leadership to address this issue. And to be clear, when he says address this issue, he means do absolutely jack fucking shit about it. Now, ironically, this is the same cunt who voted for the GOP's 2017 tax bill, which cuts taxes for his rich donors and himself and his colleagues in Congress. And on top of that, he didn't say anything about PPP loan forgiveness. In fact, he even touted PPP loans in a 2021 press release, calling them a lifeline to small businesses, churches, and charities, when in actuality, multimillionaires abused that program, including his multimillionaire colleagues in Congress. But I mean, there's no talk of the taxpayers shouldering the responsibility of paying off someone else's debt when it comes to the PPP loans that rich people took out. Again, they just want you to suffer. And this isn't the only issue where they've made it abundantly clear 
that they want to inflict as much pain and suffering on the American people as possible. When it comes to unhoused people, we know that a housing first policy is more affordable than just leaving people on the streets. In fact, another study confirmed this. Rutger Bregman writes, researchers gave 7,500 Canadian to homeless people in Vancouver. The result, the program saved money. It helped many of them to move into housing faster, which saved the shelter system $8,277 per person. Let that sink in. $8,277 is more than the value of the cash transfers of $7,500, which means the transfers paid for themselves. It's literally free money. And again, not the only study that confirms that housing first policies are more cost efficient and effective than just letting people sleep on the streets. So the question is, if we know what the solution is, if we know that it's more cost effective and will be less of a burden on the taxpayer that these politicians claim to care about, then why not just house the unhoused? Why aren't we doing the moral cost effective thing? Because fuck you. That's why, again, they wanna see people suffer. We're also on the cusp of a childcare disaster in this country as pandemic era funding is set to run out, which would result in 3.2 million kids losing childcare. Meanwhile, dumb fuck Republicans are threatening to shut down the government if Biden isn't impeached or if woke isn't removed from the military or some dumb bullshit. Do you think that concern for childcare will be factored in at all to their concerns when they talk about closing the government? Of course not. Even though they claim to care about families, they're not going to do jack fucking shit. They're not going to threaten to shut down the government so that way they can maintain child care for 3.2 million kids. Why? Because they literally want you to suffer and fuck you. That's why. The suffering fuels them. Your suffering fuels them. So if you have student loan debt like I do, good fucking luck. Take advantage of the save plan while you still can because they're probably going to uh, get rid of it somehow. If they don't pass this bill, then it's going to go through the courts and they're not going to let you lower your payment even because, again, the goal is to make you suffer as much as possible. And they're really fucking good at doing that. Really good at doing that. And I just got to say one last thing. Bill Cassidy, the person who is going after any meager attempt to mitigate this issue He's one of the more normal and reasonable Republicans because the other ones are fascists who want either a white ethno state or death camps for LGBTQ people. That's the modern day Republican Party. So, yeah. And one last thing that I want to end on here is that Biden needs to come out with a plan using his authority that he does have under the Higher Education Act of 1965 and just cancel all of it, 100% of it. Because if you means test it and you make people apply for it, you are giving Republicans time to take it on and cancel it through the courts, cancel the program that is through the courts. Whereas if you just zero out all of our balances, they can't do shit about that. And we will be eternally grateful, I guarantee you. But the system is working as intended, right? Capitalism is meant to make all of us desperate, and deprived, whereas the rich, they benefit from the system and they absolutely are benefiting from this current system, even if the government holds the overwhelming majority of student loans, because those student loan servicers are raking in a lot of cash from us. They are profiting off of our misery, but um, it's still fucking infuriating, even if I expected this. 
By now, most people know that Elon Musk doesn't actually care about freedom of speech. In fact, his commitment to freedom of speech on Twitter starts and ends with allowing people to use slurs. But regardless, if we've all seen his hypocrisy on this particular issue, he still pretends that he's principled. In fact, just a month ago, he tweeted this. If you were unfairly treated by your employer due to posting or liking something on this platform, we will fund your legal bill. No limit. Let us know. Now, the translation there is if you break Twitter's terms of use for tweeting explicit anti-Semitism like this and happen to get fired because of it, Elon Musk will come to your defense. Now, that person didn't actually get fired for that tweet. It's just a dipshit YouTuber turned edgelord. But that is an example of the only kind of free speech that Elon Musk actually seems to want to protect. And we know this because the ADL released a report in March showing that Twitter doesn't actually enforce its own policies regarding anti-Semitism. And he claims that reports like these scare away advertisers to the point where he views it as defamation and threatened the ADL with a lawsuit writing to clear our platform's name on the matter of anti-Semitism. It looks like we have no choice but to file a defamation lawsuit against the Anti-Defamation League. Oh, the irony. And he added, to be super clear, I'm pro-free speech, but against anti-Semitism of any kind. Okay, well, if that's true, then prove it. Enforce your own policy regarding anti-Semitism. But he's not going to do that because... He's okay with anti-Semitism on the platform, otherwise it wouldn't be rampant. We see it all the time, right? But he also claims that he's pro-free speech while threatening to sue the ADL because they published something that he doesn't like. Is that a very pro-free speech move? Of course not. But he's still trying to uphold this facade that he cares about free speech. Meanwhile, one of the most egregious violations of free speech and human rights abuses is taking place under his nose. And guess what he said about it? Nothing. As NPR reports, a retired teacher in Saudi Arabia was recently sentenced to death for his tweets criticizing the country's leadership to his handful of followers, according to rights advocates and his family. Mohammed al-Ghamdi, a father of seven living in Mecca, had gained just 10 followers between the two anonymous accounts he ran on X. According to Human Rights Watch, he used the social media site to rail against alleged government corruption, but was mostly resharing posts by more popular government critics. The sentencing of Mohammed Al-Ghamdi, who is in his mid-50s, is the latest in an escalating crackdown on social media users in Saudi Arabia, while others are serving prison terms ranging from 20 to 45 years for their tweets and online criticism of the government. Al-Ghamdi appears to be the first person to be sentenced to death based solely on his posts on X, formerly called Twitter, and YouTube activity. So as this man awaits execution for tweets that he made to his 10 followers, do you want to know what Elon Musk has said about this? Not a goddamn fucking thing. You'd think that if he truly cared about free speech, someone getting executed over tweets would at least warrant a small condemnation. You could even just tweet about this and say this is bad, but he's been silent on this particular matter. And to be clear, this isn't just because he couldn't care less about free speech, because as Newsweek explains, in January, Musk testified in a federal courtroom in San Francisco in connection with a class action lawsuit from investors in his car company Tesla about a pair of tweets that Musk posted on August 7, 2018, suggesting he had financial backing to take the company private, even though he did not. Musk later said in court he believed he had 
secured the financial backing he needed to take Tesla private following a series of 2018 meetings with representatives from Saudi Arabia's public investment fund that ultimately fell through. But Musk is also tied to Saudi Prince Alalid bin Talal, who became the second largest shareholder of Twitter on the same day Musk closed the deal to purchase the platform with the intent of taking it private. And as you can see here, his business partner, Prince Alalid bin Talal, called him a dear friend and proclaimed that they're together all the way. Hmm, very interesting. So it seems to me that he is not denouncing Al-Magdi's death sentence because he doesn't want to offend Twitter's second largest shareholder. And on top of that, he certainly doesn't want to piss off potential Saudi investors and other businesses that he has. So in other words, free speech be damned as long as Elon Musk can continue to make money. Now, to be fair to Elon Musk, this isn't a new phenomenon because Twitter has been aiding and abetting the Saudi censorship regime for quite some time. As The Guardian explains, the social media company formerly known as Twitter has been accused in a revised civil U.S. lawsuit of helping Saudi Arabia commit grave human rights abuses against its users, including by disclosing confidential user data at the request of Saudi authorities at a much higher rate than it has for the U.S., U.K., or Canada. The lawsuit was brought last May against X, as Twitter is known, by Arij al-Sadan, the sister of a Saudi aid worker who was forcibly disappeared and then later sentenced to 20 years in jail. It centers on the events surrounding the infiltration of the California company by three Saudi agents, two of whom were posing as Twitter employees in 2014 and 2015, which ultimately led to the arrest of al-Sadan's brother, Abdul Rahman, and the exposure of the identity of thousands of anonymous Twitter users, some of whom were later reportedly detained and tortured as part of the government's crackdown on Lawyers for Al-Sadan updated their claim last week to include new allegations about how Twitter, under the leadership of then-chief executive Jack Dorsey, willfully ignored or had knowledge of the Saudi government's campaign to ferret out critics but... Because of financial considerations and efforts to keep close ties to the Saudi government, a top investor in the company provided assistance to the kingdom. So this begs the question, where's the Twitter files? For this, I mean, Elon Musk thought that it was really important for us to know that the Biden campaign asked Twitter to remove explicit photographs of Hunter Biden. So, I mean, if he thinks that that's important, then you would expect this to be orders of magnitude more important for a supposed free speech absolutist. No, of course not, because he's a hack and he's full of shit. Twitter was literally fined for refusing to turn over records regarding Trump's Twitter account. Meanwhile, they'll do whatever Saudi Arabia wants. It's just laughable. But we shouldn't allow Elon Musk to continue to be silent about this while he continues to pretend to care about free speech. If you're on Twitter, remind him of this. Benjamin Dixon has been holding his feet to the fire, writing, Daily reminder that Elon Musk's business partners, Saudi Arabia, are about to execute a man for retweeting criticisms of their leader to his eight followers, and Elon Musk has said nothing about it. Exactly. And it's not like guilt tripping him is going to encourage him to have a change of heart or pressure him to take action. But I do think that it's important that his legion of simps know that this man is full of shit and he's a fucking coward and he's going to sit idly by as his business partner executes one of his users on his platform for being critical of his government. It's absolutely ridiculous. And I think that it might be a little bit more difficult for him to pretend to not know about this story if the hashtag free Muhammad al-Magdi trended on Twitter. But condemning this is really the easiest test for anyone who claims to care about free speech. So, I mean, if you're still on Twitter, I think that you should ask him why he's failed this basic test, why he refuses to do the bare fucking minimum and condemn Saudi Arabia for wanting to execute 
someone, planning to execute someone because of tweets. You take everything we love, all our immersions, all our fantasies, all our escapism, and you just can't help shovel your dumb crap ideology into everything, every single solitary thing. You just got a small taste of a viral rant from anti-SJW YouTuber Heel vs. Babyface. And for those not plugged into the discourse on this one, let me fill you in. So there's a new Bethesda game called Starfield, and in the beginning of the game, you can create and customize the character that you're going to be playing as. This is a pretty common feature in most role-playing games. Now, this grown man had an absolute meltdown, all because the game gave him the option to choose his pronouns. Yeah, that's what led to that rant. So now that you have some additional context here, uh, let's go ahead and watch the full thing. I just want to say something to you, Bethesda. I just want to say a little, little something. There is nothing I love more. Taking my headphones off, fuck that. Bethesda, there is nothing I love more than to, to, to sit down, comfy chair, turn on my PC, fire up a brand new RPG, uh, uh, lose myself, think, oh my god, just think of this world, just think of all the planets I can visit, all the immersive things that I can get involved with, all the fights, all the relationships, all the people I meet, all the places I go. I'm so excited to go there. And you know, I love nothing more than with all of that laid out in front of me, I love nothing more than to be dragged out at every fucking conceivable opportunity so you can fucking current day us! Sorry, did you want to get immersed in our world? Yeah, well, guess what? Fucking pronouns! Fucking gender ambiguity! Fucking current day Californian shit! Because that's all we fucking know! Because we're boring! We're so fucking boring! We can't see past our own fucking reflection! That's the level of our narcissism here at Bethesda Western Game Company. Fuck your immersion. Fuck you having a good time. Fuck you falling into a world and just getting lost. No, no, no. Current fucking day. Fuck off. You're boring. You're fucking dull. You have nothing to say. You are a one hived mind twat waffle. That's all you fucking are. And you wonder why people are getting so fucking sick and tired. You take everything we love, all our immersions, all our fantasies, all our escapism, and you just can't help shovel your dog shit fucking crap ideology into everything, every single solitary fucking thing. Having a normal one, I see. Now, he seemingly chose to keep playing after the pronoun controversy, and he ended up encountering... <laughs> A trans NPC, which stands for non-playable character in the wild, and uh, his reaction to that was predictably hilarious. Fuck off. Fuck off.
It's, in, it's infected everywhere. Nerves kicking in. Oh, shut the fuck up. I double checked and therapy is free on Turf Island, right? So I would highly encourage this individual to take advantage of his country's universal healthcare system. We don't have that luxury in the United States, so he should unironically get some help. And I mean that earnestly, like actually seek therapy if you are this triggered by a trans person because it's not healthy nor is it normal but to be fair gaming is not immune to controversies over cultural issues nearly 15 years ago rockstar released grand theft auto the ballad of gay tony and i personally remember the discourse at this time in a 2009 post in the gta forums this user pointed out that the blatant homophobia was one of the first things that they noticed in response to the game's announcement saying that it was sad people were willing to reject the game all because it had gay in the title and featured a character now in 2012 bioware didn't just give players the option to be gay or lesbian in mass effect 3 they actually included a gay sex scene which was very controversial at the time i know because i remember and this came after they actually removed a gay sex scene from mass effect 2 following criticism from fox news but the controversy goes both ways because earlier this year when hogwarts legacy came out there was a lot of discourse about whether or not it was ethical to play that game because if you purchase that game are you supporting a transphobic bigot like JK Rowling? Now, the Ant-Man decided to see what this guy said about that controversy and juxtapose what he said then with what he's saying now about Starfield. And as you're going to see, um, there's some hypocrisy there. I will not be berated, bullied, intimidated into not playing a game because you think it attacks you or goes against your ideology. Boo fucking who? Man up! Fucking pronouns! Boo fucking who? Man up! Fucking gender ambiguity! I for one am shocked that he'd be completely inconsistent here. But to be fair, he isn't the only snowflake to melt down over pronouns in Starfield because Rumble content creator Nina Infinity tweeted about how she nearly refunded the game when it asked for her pronouns. And uh, she was still considering it given how annoyed she was that they dared to ask. And on top of that, the quartering chimed in to defend his fellow anti-SJW comrades saying, the left always tries to gaslight people into thinking they are overreacting. It isn't just the pronouns, it's the slippery slope it represents. Cultists screaming it's no big deal also think it's no big deal. Healthy young women mutilate their bodies for affirmation. Ah, another transphobe supposedly concerned about mutilation. I wonder if he's ever questioned the ethics around circumcision or the literal genital mutilation of intersex babies. Something tells me that he only talks about trans people and specifically wants to police their bodily autonomy. But to be fair, when he says that this represents a slippery slope, he's right. Representation leads to normalization, and that's a good thing. Trans people exist, and they also play video games. So why shouldn't they have the option to create a character that they want? I mean, in a lot of video games, you can create any character. When my husband was playing Baldur's Gate 3, he played as some green fucking alien thing. Why can't we be what we want in a game that is about role-playing and simulation and realism? Why not give them this option? Well, it's purely because of bigotry. Now, Heels versus Babyface actually responded to the virality of that rant, and he basically talked about his quote-unquote cancellation, which you're not being canceled, but he claims that actually he's not mad. You're all mad. Man has opinion about video game. Internet goes absolutely nuclear crazy about opinion on video game. Is this actually about opinion on video game? No, this has nothing to do with opinion on video game. This is everything to do 
with going after the far-left sacred cow of gender ideology. My brother in Christ, nobody is mad or going nuclear crazy over your video game opinion or response to fucking gender ideology. We're laughing at you because you acted like a fucking petulant child. I mean, imagine if the shoe were on the other foot and a gay gamer freaked out at the sight of heterosexuality being depicted. Wouldn't you laugh at them and think that that's a little bit ridiculous? I'd find that funny because straight people exist. Therefore, I think it's perfectly fine if they are depicted in video games. But I mean, to protect his bruised ego, he decided to pretend like he's speaking some sort of a forbidden truth. When, in reality, he's just a reactionary snowflake who got triggered and melted down. And he can't accept that everyone on the internet is laughing at him. So he's got to make it about, oh, well, this is about gender ideology. And I guess I hit a nerve. No, brother, we're just laughing at you. That's it. It's not that complicated. You don't have to overthink it. But another big streamer went viral as well for the same reason. Dr. Disrespect actually speculated that Bethesda didn't send him a copy of the game because of his recent transphobic comments. And he came to this conclusion after investigating and finding out that Bethesda's senior VP of public relations, Pete Hines, actually has, wait for it, pronouns in the bio. Got it. I got it. Got it. So... I gotta say this, Chance, just real quick. I gotta, I just gotta get it off my chest. Obviously, we've been hyping up Star Citizen for uh, Starfield for a long time. We've been making it very vocal, right, Chance? Um, we had our team reach out. Hey, can we work with you? Can we do something? Due to past controversies there's no way we can work with uh dr disrespect how, how about just give me like let me play the game when it when when some of the others are playing it how about that yeah it's still that's still that's still the case yeah, that sounds like Coke to me. But he responded to that video going viral, claiming that he was taken out of context and added, politics should stay out of the video game industry entirely along with people like this. Now, that's such a stupid point to make because everything is inherently political. You can't detach politics from anything. I mean, art imitates life and life is inherently political. If you don't care about politics, it still affects you. But to the extent that Something should not be political. It's the mere inclusion of trans people. Why do you view their inclusion as a political point? They exist. They're not political points or political pawns. They exist in reality, right? They're your friends, your family. They work at grocery stores, fast food restaurants. Perhaps you run into them and don't even realize it. Why do you think that them being included is inherently political? Is it political to include black people or Asian people or gay people? I mean, it's just... They're so petulant and so entitled that they think that the world revolves around them and anything that deviates from the norm, well, that's just inherently political. I mean, is it political that when you go to these character creation screens, it always defaul defaults to a white guy? I mean, a black person can claim that that's political. Women can claim that that's political. 
but you don't see them bitching, right? But Keffels pointed out his hypocrisy in response, writing, you literally became popular by streaming a game that the US Army uses as a recruitment tool. Grow the fuck up, dude. And Hutch chimed in saying, if pronouns are political, I've got some bad news for you. And he pointed out that doctor is sometimes used as a pronoun. Yeah. And what these transphobic dipshits fail to realize is that cis people also have pronouns. It's not just trans people that have pronouns. Cis people have them too, and we've been using them our entire lives. See, when they say things like, I refuse to use pronouns, they're not actually smart enough to realize that they're using a pronoun to make that statement. But here's the thing, reactionary gamers, they will continue to bitch and moan about the inclusion of trans people in video games in the same way that they've continued to bitch and moan about the inclusion of gay people in video games. And even though homosexuality in video games is still controversial, reactionaries don't cry about it as much because they've come to begrudgingly accept that society has moved on without them. And them crying is not going to get developers to remove gay characters from video games. And the same will be true for trans inclusion as well eventually. But that doesn't mean that Bethesda is trying to shove some sort of an agenda down your throat that's stupid to think something like that right these companies don't actually have agendas more options simply broaden the appeal and enhance realism but at the end of the day simple descriptive representation isn't going to make or break these games right nobody's buying the game for that the game is going to be bought if it's good right so if starfield is good even the most reactionary player isn't going to want to miss out on that experience unfortunately for this game it seems as if the reviews are relatively mixed i mean they're positive but i've heard mixed things but i mean when it comes to bethesda their inclusion of pronouns doesn't erase their horrific mistreatment of their own employees specifically one of their trans employees because as the mary sue reports farron a transgender woman is suing zenimax which is bethesda's parent company by the way for their failure to provide continuation coverage for her healthcare. In the suit, Farron asserts that she signed a severance agreement with ZeniMax, which stipulated that they'd provide her COBRA coverage 18 months of healthcare coverage after leaving the job on the condition that she not file a discrimination lawsuit. This was allegedly after a year of transphobic aggression in her workplace after she came out, which the company seems to admit if they've asked her to not file a discrimination suit. Oh, and she says she was pressured to come out because her supervisor outed her on Slack during a meeting before she could talk to the team herself. Farron documented all of this through screenshots, recorded phone calls, and more. And long story short, after agreeing to not sue them for discrimination so long as they continue to give her health care, they didn't hold up their end of the bargain and they left her with thousands and thousands of dollars in medical bills. So they didn't uphold their end of the bargain, hence why she's suing. Now, I'll link you to her four-hour-long video where she goes over how the company fucked her over in painstaking detail. There's also a link to a Stephanie Sterling video that I will include that goes over it in a more concise manner. But, I mean, this is the reality right here of large multinational corporations. The same woke corporations supposedly shoving an agenda down your throats are the same companies who allegedly mistreat and abuse their trans employees. So if these reactionaries feel victimized by Bethesda's mere inclusion of pronouns, imagine how it feels to be Farron. I mean, this fuckface couldn't walk a day in the shoes of any trans person if pronouns trigger him that much, right? But this is what entitlement leads to, right? It makes you think that you are the center of the world, you're the main character, and anything that deviates from the norm or what makes you feel uncomfortable is automatically illegitimate. But this highlights the reality of late-stage capitalism. There are no woke corporations, contrary to popular belief. These corporations don't actually have any agenda, right? And to the extent that they do care about politics, it's about making sure that their taxes are cut and they could treat workers as shitty as possible and break up their unions. That's 
basically their entire political belief system. That's all they care about. Their one goal is to maximize profits, not push social justice causes or increase representation for some political cause, right? That's all they care about. It's just money, period. Don't overthink it. That's their one drive, making as much money as possible. So even if these reactionaries refuse to see it, they have more in common with trans people than they think. But rich capitalists have convinced them that trans people are the real enemies and not the rich people who are exploiting them. And there's a reason for that. They're just too dumb to see it. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.